expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between. It's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Episode 162 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast is here, and Nick, con season for us anyway, officially begins this weekend. Well, technically it begins Friday when we pick up our badges, because we're going to be, of course, as we do every year, cover Tidewater Comic Con here in Virginia Beach. Of course, it's this weekend, and I'm pretty excited about it, man, because, you know, we get it's that, it's that time of year where not only do we get to interview some of the you know, top people in comics that come here and television and stuff like that. But we also get to see some friends from out of town, you know, that we only get to see about once a year. Yeah, it's cool, too, because it's a show that we've gotten to see grow from the, you know, little conference room in a hotel all the way to the Virginia Beach Convention Center, which is a pretty nice-sized convention center for anybody that doesn't live in Virginia Beach. And just watching the show grow and seeing the effort. We get to see the day-to-day effort uh, a lot, too, of what goes into to putting this show on as far as you know seeing what friends of ours are doing to help promote the show on a day-to-day basis and the work that goes into it from these people i mean talk about putting your heart and soul into a con i know a lot of people do that around the country but this is a chance for us to see it you know a little bit closer because this is home base for us and it's just it's really cool to be able to do this every year not just because it's it's home for us but because you know getting to see how big it's actually gotten well, yeah, I mean, I just props to Mike Federale who puts it together every year because here's the thing. I mean, again, you mentioned how it started in you know a hotel basically, and it was a you know conference room of a hotel, and then it just grew and it grew and it grew and it grew. And you know, for example, then they had okay, we're gonna have you know one in October during the fall, and it's like okay, we're gonna we're gonna move it to May, and it's, you know, it's just grown. And it's amazing how to see how it's grown. I mean, remember the first time we actually had a table there. It was like they had like half of it or maybe a quarter of the room of the conference center, you know, and, and then you look at it now where now they have the whole building and it's going to be pretty awesome. I mean, you might go back to last year. Last year we hosted the DC panel where we talked to, of course, Eric Donovan, Ron Mars and Steve Orlando about all the new stuff they were coming, you know, and putting out. And, and you know, of course, it was on that time where Rebirth was just getting started, basically, or getting ready to be, get started. And it was pretty awesome, man. So, I mean... Again, you look at all the great things. I mean, it's going to be a fun weekend. And I will say this for people who are going to be here, Sunday I'm going to be dressed up in my Deadpool costume. So, if, hey, baby hand Deadpool is coming to Tidewater Comic Con. Pretty much the only one-armed Deadpool that you're actually going to see. <laughs> it's a legit one-armed Deadpool. Legit. <laughs> you know what's going to suck, though, is how many how would you do that questions are we going to get on Sunday for, but to you? A lot. Oh. Yeah, man. I mean, it's just one of those things where I'm I'm prepared to have that. Like, oh, how is that boy? How did you? How did you make the arms so short? And I'd be like, I was know, born. I was born. <laughs> 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 you know, remember remember the scene in Thor Ragnarok where he's chained, he's falling from the ceiling. That's my umbilical cord. <laughs> and Thor was my arm. It was wrapped around. <laughs> But hey, look how many years later it actually worked out. So, <laughs> right? Still I'm climb. able to do this. So, to, to push a running joke, I still can't, can't climb trees worth a damn. But doesn't <laughs> 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 stop me from fucking trying. There you I go. Will. I will reach the Golden Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just put it this way: you weren't going to make it to the League of Assassins camp. You weren't going to be. Uh... 
You're not going to be training there anytime soon. It's just, I mean, if you see me try to do a bow and arrow with my stub, it's just the most disappointing thing ever. It's kind of like going to a summer camp and just seeing that kid just struggle in the corner. Man, you'd have been screwed on Lee and you too, wouldn't you? Yeah. Oh, well, here's what happens. I actually, you know, kind of pinpoint a little bit. (laughs) When I was in the scouts, actually did archery. Work with me here. Oh, boy. Here's how they did it. We... Had to tie a bow to a tree. And I just oh, pulled the arrow God. and shot it like a fucking pinball machine. Oh, <laughs> Yao Fei would have taken one look at you. I'm like, this isn't gonna work. You're gonna die in a week. So you're, I, oh God. you're gonna buy. I, I would make a terrible green arrow. I know Oliver lost his arm, but I would make a terrible green I, arrow. I could see you in the Hunger Games, and they're just like, let him go. Let just, him go. Just, just it's kind of like Grandpa and Willy Wonka. Just let him sleep. Let him have one last dream. We'll take care of that later. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll be fine. It's all good. It's, just, it's, it's like, you know, like, you know the expression shooting fish in a barrel? It's like it's like shooting a blind person trying to climb a fucking tree. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, please find us at Tidewater Comic Con this weekend because this is the kind of stuff that uh, it's kind of the kind of stuff that we do. In case you've never gotten a chance to talk to us in person, by the way, all over our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff at Down and Nerdy seven five seven on Twitter and Instagram, Facebook dot com slash Down and Nerdy. Find all of our videos, pictures, all that stuff. <laughs> Oh, and the full recap, by the way, is going to be next week of Tidewater Comic Con. So that's what we'll be doing for episode 163. Just a tiny little bow on that that's not an umbilical cord. <laughs> by the way, I'm the Merc with one arm, Nick Pataglia, alongside. And I'm James with them. And for those of you who are listening to the show for the first time, I'm like, man, these guys are going to hell. What is wrong with these guys? This is basically it. This is normal. Yeah. This, this is, is just normal behavior. Normal- yeah. Normal recording day. This yeah. is what it is. This is just what happens. But coming up next, we're going to normalize things here. We're going to calm down a little bit. And we're going to discuss two new books that are out right now as what we're reading is coming your way next. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, everybody, it's that time of the week where we pull out our long boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. And, uh... You know, James, of course, we talked about Tywater Comic-Con, the introduction to the show, and somebody we did not mention is going to be there is going to be Robert Venditti. Of course, he's going to be there. He's done a lot of great work, of course, going, you know, I talk about his DC stuff with Hell Jordan and Green Lantern Corps, which has been an amazing run. But this week, I'm going to talk about his Valiant work, and of course, he has a new series out called Eternal Warrior Awakening, and it's, of course, written by... Robert Venditti. The art is done by Renato Gaitis. Colors are done by Ulysses Ariola, and letters are done by Dave Sharp. Now, and this is called Eternal Warrior Awakening for a reason. It's because Galad has something happen to him, and he has to refine his identity and who he is. Damn you, Barry Allen. <laughs> Somehow, you know, it's a different publisher. <laughs> Somehow finds a way to fuck up the timeline. <laughs> but no, the way that he loses his memory of who he is, and again, I'm not going to spoil it because that's it comes happens in the end. But it's really a nice full circle thing with everything that happens in the beginning of the book. I'll just say that. And so 
you know, he's a farmer. He, he's he's trying to find out who he is. And then, of course, you have a geomancer come to him and say, you are the eternal warrior. And, is you know, this person is just trying to make him remember who he is. In the meantime, there's an evil person called Hyam that's, uh, let's just say, you want to talk about Game of Thrones where they have the, you know, the throne that's just made of swords and iron and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, he has he's your typical ruler, ruthless kind of general, if you will, sits on literally a throne of skulls and bones, basically. And what Venditti does with this book, which is really great, is outside of having Galad find out who he is, this really shows, and he does a great job of showing that primal reaction, that kind of tribalism, if you will, when when something happens to a leader or something happens to somebody in command, how the literal foundation can just crumble and break. And going forward, that really intrigues me because it's like, okay, this this these people seem to be like a certain threat, and now we're going to see what happens and, and, and going forward. And it's really interesting because you look at the artwork as well, and just you want to talk about beautiful artwork, and, and in a sense, certain graphic artwork. There's just certain things that happen with weapons in this book, and that's all I'll say, where I was literally like, oh, Damn, like, like it's it's really awesome. And just to, going back to Venditti's writing, what I love is just the way that he phrases things. He kind of gives it that kind of that, that not Shakespearean like Thor, but that old speak, if you will, that just you know using a lot of kind of certain references and just certain types of of speaking that just you know like on the sun of the crescent moon falls upon whatever you know i will swing my axe and just it's not in the book but just kind of get a gist of what the writing's like overall this is a book for me that is beautiful to look at page by page and i'll say i'll tell you this this takes place in the setting wise during a drought and the way that, that is portrayed really great detail really really great Wonderful colors by by Ariola here. The art by Gaitis is is amazing. I mean, there's like a full a full page spread of just like a, a a village, if you will, like a campsite or campground, if you will, and just all these different people and just different looks and the kind of skulls they're wearing and the clothing and just it really captures that era so well. And going forward, man, this is a definite pull for me because. If you, to be to be honest, this is kind of without really saying it's kind of like a rebirth a little bit for uh, Galad, the Eternal Warrior, because you know, hey, if you're somebody who has not read any Eternal Warrior, or maybe it's been a while since you've read Eternal Warrior, this is a perfect series to jump into because again, it's him refining his identity, it's him coming to terms with his life and the life that he knows, and and just maybe possibly the end of that life as he knows, and so just going forward, just so much intrigue of of this possibility of there's just bigger and badder foes out there, and, you're in, and I'm interested in seeing who he goes against. What's cool is I think this is the first time that Venditti's written the Eternal Warrior character since Book of Death in 2015. So and when I saw that he was going to be doing a Eternal Warrior solo series, I was really excited because I loved the vulnerability that he gave to that character in that series, but also added the toughness in there. He gave the character a great balance, so I'm glad to hear that this book's a home run then. Yeah, man. I mean, it's totally definitely a home run. Go get it. It's it's amazing. Just like I said, just because even in the colors with, like, for example, like, there's a, a shot of Haim on his throne. And you see all, you know, skull, and, and it literally looks like 
you know, the Mortal Kombat Sub-Zero's Fatality, where he rips the skull out of the person's body, basically, in a spine rip. And he's just sitting on this, this throne of bones, and there's, like, a light shining above him, giving him this, like, this god complex. And it's gorgeous. It's nice. absolutely gorgeous. Nice. I love that. I can't wait to dive into this one myself now. So let our listeners know what you read this week. Well, I decided to, another friend of ours, by the way, that's been on the show a couple of times, Cullen Bunn, has a new Image comic out, by the way, called Regression, so why not? Let's give that first issue a try. Art by Daniel Luckert and Maria Enger does the colors and the letters for this book. Now, we've said it a lot before, I mean, even when I've reviewed Harrow County in the past, Cullen just handles creepy really, really well, and in this book, in Regression does not wait for a second to dive right into the creepy. And and again, just like we always do, I won't spoil anything, but let's say the, 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 the character who's the big bad in this book, you actually get a little bit of a reveal of who it is and get not exactly a backstory, but you, you'll know by something else that happens in the middle of the book who this is and what they are. Let's just say that, but... Just the, the, the dialogue, the monologue from this character in the very first couple of pages of this book, it's like, damn, my skin is crawling right now, Cullen. What are you doing, man? It was, it was legit creepy. Like, do not read this book right before you're about to go to bed. Because it's not like a, a ho- the, the horror factor, of course, is there, but just the outright creepy factor is all over the joint. I mean, I'm, my skin's crawling right now just talking about this thing. Man, how's the art in this thing? If, you're, if it's as creepy as you say it is, man, how, what's it look like on the inside? Let's put it this way. Uh, the, the the main character's name is, is Adrian, and he sees things. I won't tell you what he sees or anything like that, but in order to tell you what this book's kind of about, he let's just say he's seeing things he doesn't understand why. When he sees these things, the way that the art pops off of the page of what he's seeing and how it affects him when he sees it from Luckert is pretty awesome. I mean, usually when you get an image book like this, the art's really good anyway, but it's got that next level factor in it because it's creepy and it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's dirty and it's, and it's all over the place. It's like a mad, it's in, there were a couple panels where it's like, you're seeing it from his eyes kind of thing. Right. And you're like, Damn, if this was happening to me, I'd lose it in a second. How is this guy keeping it together at all? So, I mean, the the art was just so amazing. And as you progress through the book, he's got, I'm not sure if it's a friend or a sister or or something like that, because that's not really made clear in this first issue, but it's not a big deal. That's trying to help him through this because she knows that there's clearly something going on with him. So she makes a suggestion to him that he thinks absolutely ridiculous. Well, it turns out not so ridiculous after all, so after that happens, that's when things really get ramped up in the last few page of this, pages of this book. Something happens that's very unexpected based on what you've already seen in the, in the, in the earlier pages. We're like, well, damn, I, that's not exactly where I thought they were going to go at all. So what I love is that Cullen gives you that nice surprise in that first issue. Now, how many times have we said it on the show, especially if you've got a new series Give me something in that first issue that's going to make me want to come back. And not only does Cullen do it in that moment, there's a few moments in this book where it's like, well, I got to see where this goes now. Or you've got my attention. I mean, right from the beginning, he had my attention because it, it was just ultra creepy. But at the very end of this book, you're like, well, d- well, damn, I did not see that coming at all 
for a second. So now I've got to see where this is going. And, and based on how good the art is and just knowing how Cullen knows how to follow up strong issues like this. And I think he's the perfect writer for this series. This is a definite pull for me, man, because if this is and, and knowing that he's going to give that knowing how image gives you that extra little added leeway. For stories like this makes me know that we have not even scratched the surface of what's going on with this Adrian dude. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of What We're Reading. And James, you know, it is now May, which means a new Marvel movie is out. So up next, what we're going to do is going to press play and give our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. This is Vanessa Marshall, voice of Gamora on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy and Hera on Star Wars Rebels on Disney XD. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. All right, nerds, it's time to break out the Zunes and put on our best taser faces because right now it is our spoiler-filled review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. And, of course, this movie takes place about, what, three, four months after the first film and the Guardians are, well, as we last saw them, Quill, you know, the whole mystery about his father, who is his father, we find out, hey, it's Ego, the living planet, played by Kurt Russell. So what I liked about this movie does and the synopsis of it is that he meets his father, and this is pretty much just two hours of onion peelings, I like to call it, because you get two hours of the whole dynamic between Ego and Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord, you get the dynamic between Yondu and the Ravagers, you get the dynamic between Gamora and Nebula, and I liked how, you know, normally when we do Marvel movies, talk about there's always a formula that they follow, and it's very predictable. This movie, what I liked about it, especially the stuff to do with Ego, it wasn't that predictable. Not only that, one of the things that I found really unpredictable is the fact that we got a onion peeling between Rocket and Yondu, that I didn't even expect at all, not just when they were in the cell, but, you know, towards the end when they were talking about being the same and all that stuff. I did not expect to see those two have that kind of connection. I mean, once it's explained to you, it makes sense, but I I did not expect that. I really didn't expect a Mantis-Drax connection, but that happened as well. So you're right, it's almost like... It's almost like this is the the Marvel MCU movie where they can feel like, you know what, let's just... (sighs) <sighs> Let's just breathe and just do whatever the hell we want. Well, I think part of the reason why it's such a refreshing movie, at least I know I think to you and I, is that it, it's able to break away from that formula solely because it's in the cosmic universe. It's not on Earth, where even with Doctor Strange, you had certain rules it had to abide by, and it was easier to you know follow this whole formulaic thing. Plus, in a sense, there's not a lot of rules because... This is a franchise, Guardians of the Galaxy, a property, if you will, that not a lot of people knew you know, a few years ago, and now it's literally, I think, one of the biggest, if not... I mean, outside of Avengers, of course, I would say it's probably two, maybe three, in terms of just overall fanfare. Well, I mean, let's face it. They had to think when they started with the whole Guardians of the Galaxy, they're like, man, this, pro- this might not work. Right. So let's just do whatever the hell we want. Ga- Ga- and it worked! Guardians was Marvel's first real roll of the dice, outside of Avengers, of course. It was because it was an unknown property. Avengers was different because, even though it was also a huge milestone, you know, putting all these big names in one movie, Guardians was, okay, how, you know, big is our name of Marvel that we can take these Guardians of the Galaxy nobody really knows about and make a movie out of them? It was successful. And going back to the movie, 
what I liked was, I want to talk about the dynamic between Nebula and Gamora. We got a lot of much-needed exposition, especially when it comes to why, you know, I think even in the first one, the only hint of Nebula hating Gamora was, oh, well, Thanos' favorite daughter was Gamora. Typical sibling rivalry Typical type sibling stuff. rivalry, and you find out, no, it was because Gamora and Nebula would square off against one another in fights that Thanos would have them fight, and Nebula would constantly lose, and Thanos would take more of that humanity. He, he, she's, you know, she went into graphic detail. Like he ripped my arms off and gave me robotic ones. He ripped my eye out of my socket. He took my brain out of my skull, and he made me to make me this perfect, you know, being, if you will, this robotic being. You're like, oh damn, like this is deeper than I expected. It. You, you felt for, and and that's something that maybe you wouldn't have expected. And and we kind of got that, like almost a bonding moment between them at one point. In the movie, but I, I just got to say, man, I love Nebula. I don't know what it is. I mean, maybe it's just because she just doesn't care. She's such a badass. Like, when she flew that ship into that cave right. after her and just started shooting, I'm like, damn, man. Well, that's the thing, too, is that I think this movie does a great job of letting, again, talking about the lack of rules, it allows characters to really do that, to fly stuff in the caves and have, have that little remorse for their own safety, if you will, and it really benefited the movie because, again, you talk about the whole Nebula thing. It's Again, it's just one of those things where she has nothing to really lose because technically she's lost everything, you mm-hmm. know, in a sense. And you talk about the bonding. That was a big word of this movie was bonding because, I mean, we all know if you've read the comics or just, you know, Marvel Wiki, whatever, you know Ego isn't the best person. But one great thing that James Gunn does with this movie is that he makes you have these sort of certain scenes like him playing you know throwing the the energy ball around with peter and having these father-son bonding moments and you're like oh he's not a bad guy mm, it draws it, you in. it draws you in it's a nice misdirection until you see yeah he's a really bad dude and i mean there was a point where like mantis has a whole thing with drax and she's like i gotta tell you something and then part of me and i was sitting in the theater and i was like don't you fucking ruin this right, moment, Mantis. Right. You shut your mouth. <laughs> and I think part of the reason that I got sucked in is because Kurt Russell just did such a oh, damn great. good job. And he just charmed his way into making you think, hey, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. You know, Kurt Russell's his dad. He's, they're throwing the ball around. He's showing him around his, his planet and his house. And he's showing him all these cool statues of his family. And, oh, this is such a nice thing until you find out what's really going on. Until you on. find out he murders all his children yeah. because they don't possess the god gene. And wants to murder everyone else. You're right. And so, you know, he wants to spread his essence throughout the universe, literally. Oh, he succeeded in doing that. He will Chamberlain his way through the universe. He fucking sure (laughs) as hell did. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Chamberlain scored 100 points. He fucked 100 plus aliens. I I think it might be more than that, too, actually. Who knows? (laughs) But I like this movie because... Again, you get those dynamics. Like I didn't like you mentioned the whole Mantis Drax thing. Like when when Drax is talking about the death, you know, I take my daughter to the spring and everything like that, and Mantis is crying. Like they give you real emotional moments. They carry a lot of weight. And I want to say this too is that what I loved a lot about this movie was it was so beautiful. Okay, I know yeah, we talk about you know don't get lost in the aesthetics, but. The whole thing of ego and just everything. You made this whole literal galaxy. It was just beautiful to look at. And it's just one of those things where you get 
lost in it, and it was amazing. It was, I think, more visually stunning than Doctor Strange because, again, this is a whole universe you're looking at. And it was just beautiful sitting there for two hours, and part of me kind of felt like looking at that, the different ships, the different planets, the lifestyles and the life forms of everything, it made that two-hour span go by really quick, I thought. Yeah, and I thought even the where, when we were seeing the stuff with the Sovereigns as well, not just when they were at their castle, but you know with the ships that were not piloted ships, they were remotely piloted ships, I, I thought that that was beautifully done as well. And the whole scene where she meets Yondu and they're rolling out, that, rolling out the carpet for and stuff like that, I thought all that was beautifully shot. And that's what I liked about this movie too, is we, what was the one thing we talked about with a lot of Marvel properties. They always have that villain problem. You know, of course, Guardians, one of the big things I did not like about it was bec- how they had, you know, dealt with their villain, you know, Ronan, the accuser, and how he wasn't really much of a villain. And now it, they didn't use Thanos at all. Well, and also how they defeated Ronan, really. Uh, they defeated him with a dance, but it wasn't really a real fight. This one, they're like, okay, let's fix that. Let's make Ego this actual, you know, let's let's make him a great villain because we're going to draw you in and we're going to pull 180 on him in the last moment. And it's not going to be done the way you think it's going to be done. And let's actually have a legit fight between him and Peter. I mean, that fight, I mean, it was great with the whole Pac-Man thing and, and the mm, big stone That was fights. awesome. And then you've got the Sovereigns who are the persistent skin right. rash that just won't go away and keep screwing things well, up here's along the, thing. the way. But here's the thing, though. What I liked about this movie was, you know, this whole time in the trailers, you thought that the Sovereigns, you know, Aisha, she's also called her in the comics, you thought they were going to be the main villain. But you find out that, up until the point where Ego's true intentions are revealed, this movie does not have a real villain outside mm-hmm. really the Guardians because they cause the Sovereigns to go after by well, stealing the Rocket batteries. does. Yeah. <laughs> but then you realize why Rocket does that, and there's more of your onion peeling. You find out more about Rocket as well, and why he's such an asshole all the time. Right. Which I think we kind of knew, but it's it's one of those things that wasn't said, but it needed to be said at some point, and, and they did that. And it was, it was weird because it was like... Yondu drew it out of him. And Yondu, if anybody did a complete 180 in this movie, it was him. Well, I loved what they did with Yondu in this because one of my favorite scenes from the first movie was him using his arrow and going through all those, you know, people and everything like that. It was great. So, of course, it did a much more expanded scene like Mm -hmm. that. And I liked how he had the the really classic fin he had in the comics as well. And he, he quote-unquote, upgraded to that. Yep. Uh, I like that. And, they, and, again, this, you want to talk about onion peeling again. They just showed the great detail in who these people are, every character, both inside and out. And Yandu, you know, he, I will say this, I think next to Gamora, he's probably my second favorite Guardians character. Well, and the thing is, is that, you see him get thrown away by yet another family right. in this movie when he goes up to talk to Sylvester Stallone's character and he says, you dealt in children. You're right. You may wear our colors, but you're not part you, of us You may anymore. wear the, the, the flame badge, but yeah. you don't, you're and not part of us. So our, he gets cast aside. Our colors will not be flown at your funeral and stuff like right. that. Right, so he gets cast aside by another family, and then we find out how his he was you know, like sold into slavery for right. 20 years or something like that and just kind of left by his original family, and, and then therein lies the and connection. And you find out the whole dealing with children, it was the whole Peter thing, because, you know, Ego says, well, I paid Yondu to bring it to me, and then the Ravagers got, you know, the whole crew just got a whole wind of that, and then you're like, wow, Yondu sacrificed everything for Peter. Yep. And, and 
he was that father figure. I mean, you saw in the kind of in Yandu's death scene, which caught me a little bit by surprise. I didn't expect it to happen because nobody really dies in the Marvel movie except for kind of the, the villain. Yeah, you know, but. Yandu, when you see the, the the quick snippet, the memories of rush through Peter's brain of just him and Yandu, and Yandu's teaching him how to shoot, and just like wow, and and the line that got me that and I cried during this uh, when he was you know they're going up into space, and you you realize the like, Peter's realizes like Yandu's dying because he put the space suit on Peter, and he's like e- Ego would have been your father, but he wasn't your daddy. Yeah, and, and I'm like. Oh my God! Imagine finding out that someone was your real father as they're dying yeah. in front of you. Not to mention, wait, what? No, no, he wasn't his real father, but he was. He was. Wait, when, he said, I, when I say real father, I mean oh, real yeah. father. Oh yeah, like like brought brought him up and actually. And yeah. how about you being Peter Quill and every parent, whether you want to put air quotes in front of that or not, has died literally in front of your face. Your yeah. mother. Your biological father and your real father yeah. all died right in front of your face. Think about that for a second. Yeah, man. I mean, Yandu is kind of like the stepdad you actually liked. <laughs> yeah, he's like the stepdad that was the cool stepdad yeah. that you know would take you know I'm going to take your mom out, but why don't you come with us or, and we'll go to dinner? Or maybe something he was kind of like that cool uncle that ends up moving in on your mom, <laughs> but you didn't. But you didn't know. A Hamlet thing, kind you of. You didn't know that he was cool at the time, right? And that's the other thing. I'm Mary Poppins, Joe. Oh my god! When he said that, <laughs> the whole theater erupted in laughter. But I mean, Michael Rooker, we saw him in Awesome Con uh, last summer in June, and I mean, he was just—he was awesome. And uh, and I mean, his portrayal of Yandu was great, and he made made you feel. I mean, and again, when me, you know, I, I was here, I felt the tears well up a little bit when you know he he first died, and then you know, I what really, really hit me was when he's going through the incinerator and he's going into space, you see all the Ravagers, and they're giving him a Ravager funeral. I'm like, oh my god, I'm losing, I'm yep. losing, I'm crying, I'm yep. done, I'm done, I'm crying, you know. <laughs> it was tough, man, and, and see how many that there were in there. Oh, yeah. And, like, all the, like, the fireworks type stuff like that. And that was just, like... That was really, really It was neat. just, it was, you know, kind of like, he, he paid his penance, if you will. And then you you got you got his, uh, you know, first in command there, gives the Ravager oh, symbol kind of thing, and when he sees everything... And like the, you know, he got it. He got what he deserved. He he got kicked around his entire life, but in death, he finally got what he would have really wanted. And that's in a son and a property. And that's what I liked about this movie is that a lot of characters' arcs kind of came full circle. You saw how they were as people. You saw everything going forward and just who they were as people and individuals and his teams and everything else like that. And what I also love, too, is going to talk about Drax. I know some people didn't like it, or maybe they were a little bit, I would say myth, but just kind of didn't expect it was. He wasn't the same Drax comedically in the second film as he was in the first one. He was more uh, asshole-ish, if you will. He was more blunt. He And I think part of it is because I liked that, because I'm one of the people that like people that liked it because it showed again character growth. It showed him being around Peter and Gamora. Like when you're around these types of people, you're gonna come out of your shell more. He's gonna understand things. So I mean, he's just a downward, downright asshole in this man. Oh yeah, and I mean, I liked that they did that too. I liked that he wasn't the same character right. in the second movie. I just feel like so much of the humor came in that first movie. From who right. he was in the first movie, and then while this movie was funny, I didn't think that there was as much that made up 
for the lack of that. So I didn't want him to be the same guy, but I don't feel like there was a... I felt like the humor gap there wasn't filled that was left by that. And I think a part of that is because the way this movie is written, the sequel, I should say, is written, is because jokes are flying a mile a minute. Yeah. Joke upon joke upon joke. So you're not going to catch everything. You might need to go see it a second time and really get every joke. Say, oh, I didn't understand that, you know, or whatever. Maybe because the theater laughed so you couldn't hear a second joke or a third or whatever. But, I mean, you brought it up, the taser face line, man. That was a running gag that really had me laughing. That hit every time. That oh, yeah. was one joke that hit every time. Like, when he was talking to the Sovereigns and she loses it. Oh, yeah. I lost it on that one, too. That was really, really funny. And any joke... That was a joke against Rocket. I thought was funny too. Oh yeah, because they were all they were all really really good. Like Trash Panda, I Trash lost Panda. It. Can I pet your puppy? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> that was really great. I loved those lines. So I'm not saying it wasn't funny. I just felt like so much of the humor came right. from Drax oh, yeah. in the first movie, and then you kind of have a completely different kind of humor for him. It was a flip that I, I don't want to say I didn't expect it. But it was like, you know, I wish I could have got one more, you know. Maybe it's me being greedy. I don't know. I wish I could have got one more. It's kind of like Hacksaw Ridge. If I could just get one more, Lord. If yeah, I could just exactly. get one more. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it's just one of those things where I looked at this movie and I'm like, and I was, I will admit, I was kind of watching this movie kind of like, okay, where are some of the negatives in this? And I, it was hard for me. I think the only thing I could find is, of course, not every joke landed. Yeah. But other than that, I think it was a really a solid film. And I think this was, I will say, this is, I think, my favorite or the best Marvel movie since Winter Soldier. I mean, if I cataloged them in my mind quickly, I would say that that's probably about right. Right. Um, I, I think that it, it was a good sequel. And, and you don't get to say that out loud very often. No. It was a, it was a very good sequel. And while it wasn't as funny as the first one, I think part of that was in the first one, you weren't ready for it. You didn't know what to expect, and that's what made so many of the jokes land. And then this one, you're more familiar with the characters. You know what they're like. You've got a better sense. I mean, whether you're a comic book fan or not, you didn't really know. Most of us didn't really know the humor of the Guardians of the Galaxy. And when you saw that first movie, it was so unexpected that it made it more funny. And now that it was expected, it's it's not as funny in, well, you know what's in every funny spot. Is that this movie was released in May. I mean, if Marvel is been that that studio that kicks off the summer movie blockbuster season if you will every year so guardians was the sixth highest may debut in cinema history and it's also the biggest mcu opening for a movie not featuring robert downey jr wow uh so here i want to play a little game here before we move on to the of course the end credit scenes what were the top five highest may debuts all right, well, i got to go with Avengers. Okay, that, that was number one. That seems obvious. Um, let's go with Iron Man 3. That was four. Uh, uh, let's see. And then and then it gets difficult. <laughs> uh, um, um, Age of Ultron. That was two. Uh, Winter Soldier. No. No? No. What the hell is wrong with you people? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, I, there's got to be a non-Marvel movie in there, so I'm going to go Dark Knight Rises. No. No? That might not have been May release. I think it was June. Okay, because that, that was a big one. All right, so lie. not... Let's see. Other Marvel movies that would have had 
big May openings. And there's two more. I mean, you've got three. Of yeah, the five. I know, and I, and that is what's pissing me off. Well, the well, no, because we already talked about the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, so that can't be in. That's there. That's not in there. Okay. Hmm. One more guess. Uh, I'm not guessing Iron Man two because there's no, no. I'm not gonna say Iron Man two. I'm gonna go with. Don't you hate it when you close your eyes and try to think of something, <laughs> and it just won't come out close of your Close your eyes, head. make a wish, or something <laughs> turn to shit anyway. I can fall asleep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to kick myself when I hear the full list. Okay, so number one was Avengers. Number two, Age of Ultron. Three was Civil War. Ah, uh, well, we didn't like it. That's why I didn't think of it. <laughs> Four was <laughs> Iron Man 3. Number five, Spider-Man 3. Ah. Uh, so there's your non... I mean, it's technically Sony, so there's your technically you, non Spider-Man. But, like, <laughs> like, just get that the top six movie releases in May are, yeah. are all Marvel properties, yeah. so that's uh, something. Now, let's get to the... Of course, scenes a lot of people are talking about, the five end credit sequence, or let's just say mid-credit scenes, because they weren't really at the end, which I liked. Or through credits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're called mid-credits. There you go. <laughs> so, of course, I think the one that stuck out to us, and it was something you set off air, like, you were not ready for this. Uh, we got the Watchers. Was not ready for that. I mean, I knew that something was going on with Stan Lee, and they were going to introduce certain characters and stuff like that, and I'm like, I did not expect it to be Watchers. At all. I thought it was neat. I thought they looked great. Oh, my God, yeah. And, I mean, <laughs> that opens the door for some stuff. I yeah. don't know if they're actually going to go through that I door. Hope, I just hope that none of those things is original sin because I, that's that was terrible. the first thing I thought. I'm like, don't you dare. Don't do an original don't sin movie. Do, I don't care if it's ten years from now. Don't you dare do an original sin Because original sin, sin was terrible. It was awful for a multitude of reasons that I didn't even want to relive right for now. For people who don't know what original sin is, it was a arc and an event that Marvel did well like a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and it was about who killed the Watcher and it was very anticlimactic and spoiler alert Nick Fury ends up being the one that killed the Watcher. Here's the deal. If you want to know about Original Sin you can find it at the dollar bin in any local con <laughs> that you go to. That's how bad it was, okay? Damn, you're not going local shop, you're going local con. You can find it at the smallest possible con you've ever been to. Not not something as big as Tidewater Comic Con that we're going to be at. No, but, like but flea market level. You will find, yeah, the flea market. That's even better. Yeah, you can find it at your local flea market. Probably going to be what's holding up the long boxes at the table. So, of course, another scene we got, and that's something I like, too, about the movie, is that Baby Groot, you know, my biggest fear was, oh, my God, they're going to ram him down our throats. He was not. He was nope. more in the background yep. character, if you will. And they didn't, they said, yeah, we're not going to keep him as a baby the entire, you know, for long. So he turns into a teenager, you know, or... I, I am great. I swear I didn't know. Yeah, so when I while, made that joke a couple so, weeks ago, I so, swear I didn't so know. So a while back on the show, we were talking about the five, you know, it was announced there were going to be five end credit scenes, and James just goes, I bet what's it going to be? What's, what's one going to be? Like a teenage group? A moody teenage group. And yeah. goddamn, one of them was a moody teenage group. I swear I didn't know. It made sense, though. It's like, who wouldn't want to do that? And you're right. The, I am Groot. That was really funny. And, of course, and the vines are, the, the the vines are everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. That was really good. Man, clean up your roots. Uh, but, of course, you had uh, James, I believe James Gunn's brother who played, like, the second command to Yondu. And he, you know, he's practicing Yondu's, uh, uh, arrow and something like that. It goes into Drax's neck. Yep. And, uh, here's something that I want to ask you. Are you kind of shocked that none of the end cred scenes really, outside of the Watcher scene, really 
melded next like Thor Ragnarok or kind of tied anything together in the future? I think I'm not only because of the things that we've discussed, how Guardians of the Galaxy seems to be that movie where the MCU goes, and, all right, you know what, let's just have And fun. also apparently, again, this comes, this takes place three months after the first movie. Right, so. and, and, and you know, you can talk, you know, plot holes and, well, this happened and I can't believe right. they didn't but talk about this. But in the sense of it, you know, Civil War probably hasn't happened yet and stuff like that. Didn't so bother me. Didn't bother me. And no. I think that I, I feel like if any of the movies is more disconnected, I feel like Guardians is. And I know that with Thanos coming up, it's not disconnected. What I mean is it just doesn't feel like it fits yet. And Avengers uh, Infinity Wars, when they're finally going to fit it in. And, of course, now it's time where we give our rating. So, James, I'm going to have you go first. Give your rating. And I think that we've pretty much talked about all the stuff that we liked and, and not much that there isn't – no, what's not to like almost. I do think that maybe just a tad they drug out the whole Peter and his dad thing a little bit in the middle, a little bit. And that's me nitpicking a little bit because there was a point where you kind of almost knew where it was going yeah. and I wish they could have got there a little bit faster but other than that man I mean I think you're getting more from the characters like we talked about we're getting more Nebula which was one of my complaints about the first movie we didn't get enough of her the fact that a dance battle didn't end in the big bad fight and we got a big bad fight and a big bad that was worthy of the spotlight finally and Kurt Russell doing an amazing job everybody top to bottom from the cast doing their thing and what we loved from the first movie, so I'm going to go ahead and give this nine exploding taser faces out of ten. Okay, speaking of taser face, one of my favorite things about this movie as well is that they knew when to end things. Like they knew when to end the whole thing between Yondu and his, you know, the ex Ravenger team, if you will. They knew when to wrap things up nicely, put a bow on it. Uh, this movie again is over two hours long, but it moved really well. I felt like not well. Not a lot of the jokes hit. Uh, the ones I think that were most important, the most funniest, at least to me, hit. And again, I like that Groot wasn't shoved down our throats. I like the fact that we got a lot of exposition on Gamora and Nebula's relationship because Gamora is probably my favorite Guardians character, uh, especially the person that's on the team as well. And I probably put Yondu second, Nebula third. But I like that you know we got this whole movie of, okay, we're going to do a deep dive in these character traits, these character profiles. I like that a lot. I like Kurt Russell's ego. Whatever Marvel has to make their people look young is fucking amazing. Yeah. Like, holy shit. Um, but, I mean, I think that when you look at it, overall, this movie really worked against... God, this might be a, for once, first time in like a while, at least for a movie, we've we've sat down and reviewed a movie and we're like, wow, we actually liked it. Yeah. Um, really? <laughs> so for me, I'm going to give this because something that, I don't, this isn't an automatic number one thing, but if a movie can make me cry, that puts it up on another level. So I'm going to give this 10 out of 10 anti-gravity minds that explode while Brandy plays in the background. <laughs> Where you're praying Kleenex to whatever the next movie is that we go see. Can I tell you something? I actually brought Kleenex. Uh, well, see, you were prepared then. Because after Logan and Power Rangers and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, I've, can you just say that real quickly? Like, I've been just a big emotional fucking mess. You're going to be all cried past, out by August. In the past three movies, man, it's, it's kind of like... There's no more. My ducks are gone. Like no, I cannot cry. Go get a Gatorade, and we'll, and we'll you know, we'll, we'll be able to finish. I it. actually have a f- one in the studio. Well, actually, see, there you go, right there. <laughs> That's gonna do it for our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Come up next, we have a bunch of nerd news to get to, including 
A certain property is getting a reboot, and some fans aren't the happiest about it. We're going to talk about that more coming up next. I'm Haley Mancini. And I'm Jake Goldman. And we are writers for the Powerpuff Girls. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Yeah. Well, James, it's time to open up the gates of hell, because it's time for what? Nerd News! And of course, the reboot that a lot of people are talking about for different reasons is... The reboot involving Hellboy, and I will say this. When it comes down to it, this was the move the studio itself had to make. Yeah, and not only that, when the Hollywood Reporter first reported this, and I saw who was going to be Hellboy, David Harbour, of course everybody knows from Stranger Things, I'm like, that that's a good choice. And when everybody was like, well, Perlman's not going to be doing it. And we're not going to have any involvement from Del Toro. And I'm like, you know what? It's like, well, you know what? Keaton and Burton weren't involved in every Batman movie. Right. And it was time to move on. Although I do think it's funny that when Perlman tweeted out, what was it, like February? Well, now that Hellboy's dead, I guess I'll take the day off Twitter. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it's not dead. They just didn't tell you that it was alive and was going to be without you. Well, because you knew that this was being discussed. But here's the thing. This is why... I th- People might crucify him for it, but this is why I think that it was the right move to reboot everything and start anew, because Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, was released in 2008. Now, of course, you had these direct-to-DVD animated films, which I guess featured some of the cast as well, but that's ten, almost 10 years. And you can't really count those. But, that, but that's the thing. Is, but hear me out. Like, this is, it's 10 years since we got another Hellboy, since we had a Hellboy movie. That past 10 years has been... Guillermo del Toro, oh, I'm going to make Hellboy 3. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to make it. Oh, I'm doing this now. I'm doing this movie. I'm doing that movie. I'm doing Crimson Peak, whatever. I'm doing this. It's like, you know, it's just one of those things where it had to be done. Like, the studio, I think, was losing patience, and they're like, listen, let's just reboot everything. Let's just get this thing done. And, of course, Neil Marshall is going to be directing the reboot. Now, some of his work includes Game of Thrones. He did Black Sails. He also did a couple of episodes of Constantine. His movies, however, haven't been the best, but I think the last movie he directed, I think it was like 2008, I think it was Doomsday, I think it was called 2008. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, his movies haven't been the best. But in terms of the television stuff he's done, he's worked on some very good television shows. And overall, again, I think this is a really good move. I'm interested to see where they go with this. I mean, McNoll is going to be involved no matter what, I think, so yeah. we'll, we'll be okay there. I think that he'll make sure it stays true. And I, I just want to talk to people for a second that say... Oh, uh, Ron Perlman's Hellboy. Nobody else can be Hellboy. Well, nobody else has been Hellboy. And I think saying that nobody else can be Hellboy is a very closed-minded way to think about things because, I mean, David Harbour has some chops, man. Well, I mean, he, he's good. I think he's going to be able to pull this off. Well, I mean, if you've watched Stranger Things, he does an amazing job as Hopper. And the Oscar award-winning Suicide Squad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just twist that fucking knife here. Yeah, I told you I'm going to keep bringing it up. It was just an opportunity right there. But no, to be in all seriousness, you can kind of, if you've seen David Harbour in action, you kind of get those little, I mean, the look, you could see the look, you could see the little idiosyncrasies. And if you really can let go of the Perlman thing for five seconds and see this, he could do this. What I would love to see is I really want to see 
them take the reins of them. I want, I want to see the whole Hellboy universe be made. I want to see Lobster Johnson. Yeah. I want to see... The BRPD, man. Yeah, Let's I want to do see it. that. I want to see, of course, we're going to more likely get Abe Sapien. You know, I want to get all that in there, man, you know? If you're going to reboot it, you might as well do all that stuff. And oh not God. only that, I mean, I know that we hate talking about stuff like this, especially this early on, but... Everybody wants that spin-off potential, oh, right? Yeah. Everybody wants that and, that franchise potential, and, and that's not what they're going for here. But a perfect prequel slash spin-off could yeah. be Lobster Johnson. Yeah, and and you know, the best of intentions where all of a sudden somebody starts to steal the show, you know, like let's say Harbor is great, but then whoever plays Lobster Johnson, people fall in love with him, and then all of a sudden, what you didn't expect was a Lobster Johnson spin-off movie. And of course, speaking of well, not really spin-offs, but just as Adaptations, if you will. Judge Dredd, we loved Dredd. They came out in 2012. We saw Carl Urban at Awesome Con last year. He was talking about, of course, his role in Thor at the time, Star Trek, and also Dredd. Did the Dredd voice, which was very, very cool. Oh, yeah. So, of course, we're talking Dredd right now, and a lot of people, for I know I've been one of them, saying, I want a Dredd sequel. I want Carl Urban as Dredd. And, you know, to kind of piggyback off you, say, like, Nobody can play, you know, Hellboy except for Perlman. Well, I will say this right now. Nobody can play Drudge Dread except Carl fucking Urban. And I'll tell you what, if anybody's got any ideas, <laughs> I, we'd love to hear them. I mean, if you're listening on SoundCloud, go ahead and comment on this right now. Say who you'd so, like to play Judge Dread or on our, any of our social media pages. So, of course, no channel or, or streaming service has been announced yet. No real details it's just been announced. Hey, we are doing this. In a TV format. Now, Rebellion Productions is teaming up, of course, with I Am Global. They did Hacksaw Ridge. They also did Silence, which was a Martin Scorsese film. So they do have some some uh, prominence, if you will, and they do have some, some clout. So looking at this, though, where do you, do you see them going? I know there was a little bit of a, not really a synopsis, just kind of a, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves, if you will. One of the things actually kind of you pointed out off air kind of worried you about this project. Yeah, one of the things that worries worries me is that Rebellion was was billed as kind of like a video game type company, and I know that they've done more than just that, but at the same time it's like ah, that that kind of worries me because and, and the poster I thought was was is what it is and how much can you really judge by a poster, but I'm like <laughs> I'm just judge. I'm just <laughs> there you go. But I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't want to say this looks small time either, but it just seems like this doesn't feel like a major television production like, I mean, we're going to be talking about Gifted here in a few minutes. It doesn't feel like that, and I, and I want Dread to feel like that. And I'm not disrespecting anybody at Rebellion. It's more of a lack of knowledge of what they've done in the past, and, and this, to me, seems like a big step up from where they're at now. Well, one of the quotes, I don't, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically one of the people said, talked about how great this universe is, but then they said, "How funny it is!" It was Mark Wagner. I think that I think I know the last name is Wagner for sure. But he's one of the one of the people that works for I Am Global, and he is one of the people attached as executive yeah. producer. And he would—that's the paraphrase quote. But you want to talk about networks? That same guy was involved with developing Helix, yep. Battlestar Galactica. This all according to Sci-Fi Weekly. shows. Sci-Fi shows. Defiance was on there as well. So, looking for a network, this guy's worked with Sci-Fi three times. I mean, I know that Helix was canceled after two seasons, Defiance after three, but... But you got Krypton coming, you got... Maybe you want to add a Dread thing as well. Depending on how... I think if you want to do a Dread movie... I mean, Magicians wasn't 
that Magicians, Magicians was, was graphic, graphic in season two. Yeah. This is doable on sci-fi. Well, that's what I'm saying. Trust so me. I'm kind of like, oh, maybe they can't do it. No, I'm like, oh, no, no. Season two Magicians I've got was one word extreme. for you. Reynard. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, shit, yeah. 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 We'll be okay on we'll sci-fi if on they sci-fi. decide to do it. And, and hey, how much have we talked about how much sci-fi has stepped up their game with original programming? Right, they've gone from Sharktopus versus Man Martian to whatever. Yeah, to Magicians, <laughs> and then you, you know, throw one on Earp into the mix, another right. IDW property. Right. Who has the rights to Judge Dredd right now? IDW. IDW. Does IDW have it or is Dark Horse? Yeah, IDW's publishing, man. Really? I thought Dark Horse did it. IDW's, well, they did the crossover. uh, That's right. With Dread versus Predator versus That's right. And it was like a kind of a dual thing. But IDW's got Dread right now. IDW's got Wine on Earth. What's Wine on Earth on? Sci-fi. So everything to me seems to point to sci-fi. They might not end up getting it. But it seems like there's a home there, and sci-fi, I'm sure, would not mind beefing up their original programming with yet another well-known property, especially if Carl Urban wants to be attached. Man, I mean, I can't wait to see what they do with this project. But a project we got to take another look at as well, actually a much more deeper look, is Blade Runner 2049. And the first full trailer came out, and I will say this. Um... It's been 35 years since Blade Runner was released. It was released back in 1982. So my rule of thumb is always when a sequel is released five, three to five years after the first one. I know like back in the 90s, it was kind of like that. You know, sequels did come out like every two or three years because that was different process. That's just that, the way back it did. Then, yeah. like that. But nowadays, you're getting every other year. So my thing is whenever there's a three to five year gap with a sequel, it's, the sequel's never going to be good. Especially from 80s movies. Well, I mean, RoboCop, yep. Total Recall, yep. Aliens 3 through whatever. Yep. Uh, you look at, 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 what are some other ones? Die Hard. Die Hard. Um, oh, fuck, how can we forget this one? Terminator. Yeah. Terminator 3 I was terrible. I mean, terrible. We, we could keep going on this for probably another 10 minutes, right. just listing sequels that were redone, especially recently, that just did not work. And but but you're right, man. It's it's scary, and as somebody who is is a Blade Runner fan, Ghostbusters. I mean, you want to look at what they're doing, and in this first trailer, let's not take anything away from being visually striking. It was, and, and I like the fact that. Well, go ahead. Well, I'm gonna say uh, visually striking, and plus, look at Blade Runner. It was released in '82. A lot of anime, a lot of stuff that takes place in the future has been and uses inspiration from that. I mean, look at Ghost in the Shell. You look at just other. You know, Akira and stuff like that. Yeah, and quite frankly, I, one of the reasons that I'm gl- that I'm I'm kind of glad that they're doing this is now the technology's finally caught up to the mo- this movie being made probably the way right. that they just couldn't make it back in the 80s. I mean, Star Wars was the exception to the rule back then as far as special effects went, and they kind of broke the mold at Lucasfilms. But you know, Blade Runner wasn't afforded that kind of uh, that kind of technology, so at least the technology will catch up to make it look good. The problem I have is is with the potential story and we were talking about this off the air about having Harrison Ford and Deckard in this and I think that that could end up actually hurting this movie more than actually helping. Well, and here's the reason why because of course the biggest mystery for the past 35 years has been is Deckard a replicant? Is he human? Well, you see Harrison Ford, he's older now and... What does that tell you? What does it tell you? He's not a replicant. If you know the story... Right. He's not a replicant, and they can't pull this whole fast thing of, oh, we made a replicant that can age with time. Fuck off! Because, well, and that's and that's just poor storytelling. It's lazy storytelling if they do that. And if they make Ryan Gosling's character 
a replicant in this movie, I think that that's going to be that's going to be sloppy too. Like, really, you're going to pull that garbage? Right. right. It's just gonna, it's going to be one of those things, man. Where I like that mystery. I love that mystery of Blade Runner. Like, is he a replicant? Is he not? I just hope they avoid no win scenarios in the storytelling because in this what the only thing this first trailer told me because you get little hints here and there of things and uh, but Jared, Jared Leto's character I'll give them credit that Wallace looks like he's pretty freaky well that but also he's Jared Leto's much more toned down this I mean you go from being the Joker yeah. to this yeah very <laughs> total, true. total 180 very here. true but I mean if you were a fan of Tyrell in the first movie I think he definitely brings that vibe to mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that th- that was a good casting, and I think that that's you've seen that brought to fruition now in this trailer. But I just see the too many possibilities for no-win scenarios here, and that's the one thing that's got me worried is that you could screw this up so easily right. if you wanted to, and I hope that they don't. Yeah, man. My, my hope is just that, again, I really want the sequel to be good. I want to prove me wrong. You know, prove that a sequel that's made more than, well more than Not five prove years. prove you wrong. Prove history wrong. That's true. I mean, you you had nothing to do with all of these sequels. <laughs> this was done to us, not by you. So, I mean, prove history wrong. I like how we, we it was done to us. Like, we cho- like we had a choice of actually paying to see some of these well, sequels. Right now, we kind of don't. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, because... Alien we co- do this for them, damn it. Well, we do this wait for a everybody that was wait like a minute. us. Wait, I'm calling you the fuck out right now because I talk about, hey, Alien Covenant's coming out. Let's review on the show. Hey, we made a deal. What? And you know it. <laughs> you can't call me out for that. We made a deal on that one. But here's the thing. I'm like, hey, let's go see Alien Covenant. Oh, well, I don't know, man. I'm not a big alien fan. No, 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 no. You tell the people the full story now. You tell them the full truth. <laughs> you didn't want to go see the mummy. And because I, the mummy that, looks that, like that, shit. That, 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 well, oh, tell me Alien Covenant looks like the best fucking movie you've ever seen in your life. I no, mean, it does not. I mean, I know I did say that, like, the... Alien sequels after two, after Aliens was were bad. Yeah, and this one looks so much better. Than but those. I mean, it's Xenomorphs. <laughs> it's the Mummy. <laughs> Come on, both of them could be equally terrible. So you decide. I take. I will. You're take, gonna take Alien. I'll take the chestbursters over Jesus Pose and Billings coming down and Tom Cruise on an Apple box. You know, to look hey, taller. Hey man, I'm taking a Universal monster flyer over Aliens. I'm doing it. Well, least, First in the franchise, I'm doing it. Well, at least my movie has an actual fucking universe. Well, actually, they haven't made their mind up about that yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll decide after the first one. Oh. This is why we've done over 160 shows together. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, speaking of, of shows, you know, we, we talked about in our Guardians review about all the money that Marvel's made during May. Well, of course, going back to February with 20th Century Fox... Deadpool was huge. I mean, it made $760 million worldwide. And now I'm happy as hell about this. We're going to be getting an animated show on FXX. And it's going to be showrun by Donald and Stephen Glover. And it's going to be 10 episodes. And it's going to be airing in 2018. I am so goddamn excited. And before you say, why FXX? Let me just remind you that Archer is on FXX. So if you're wondering if this is going to be adult or not, I think you've got your answer. So I think that this this is a good home for this. And, of course, you keep it in the Fox family and stuff like that. Here's the thing, too. I don't know if you've made this connection or realized this, but FXX is going to have the Deadpool show. 
FX has Legion. Yep. So you have two X-Men shows on, you know, the same thing, the same network or not. Well, then you add Gifted on Fox, and there's your third. Well, yeah. Yeah, shit. Because they dropped that teaser this week, too, which was basically, hey, who loves microwave popcorn? I mean, everybody loves microwave popcorn. Well, you do what you got to do to get it, and they did. Yeah, so, I mean, but this whole Deadpool show, man, I'm excited about it because I wonder what the... Of course, it's an animated show. I wonder what the animation style is going to be like. Yep. The fact that it is on FXX, like Archer and stuff like that, they can do more stuff. They can. It's gonna be. It's gonna be fantastic. I think. Put it on at ten o'clock. Yeah. Put it on at ten or later. People will still watch it. Don't worry. I mean, you know, again, you look at Legion, and I know Legion. They say, "Oh, it's not an X Men show." It's an X Men. It's show. an X Men show. Yeah. People need to stop nitpicking Legion. It's an X Men. show. Yeah. But, I mean, look at that, and again, you mentioned The Gifted that's coming out on Fox as well. This is a really big time for X-Men. It's kind of like, you know, you go back to the 90s and early 2000s when you had the, all those animated X-Men shows. You had, um, you know, you had the regular X-Men show. You had, what was it, I think, X-Men Evolution, I believe you mm-hmm. had as well in the early 2000s. And, I mean, overall, you look at what they're doing now, it's like they, they're taking that and they're making it live action in a sense, and, and partly animated. Well, I mean, both. if you're looking at comic sales and movie popularity and all things over the years before this MCU even became a thing, the X-Men were carrying the flag. Yeah. I mean, Spider-Man, yeah. of course, did what Spider-Man's supposed to do. Right. But it was X-Men in everything well, else. And, and even what the X-Men's comics are one of the only things keeping Marvel comics well, here's, afloat. Well right here's now. the thing well here's the thing. You know, people mentioned the whole Superman, Batman, stuff like that. But after Batman, yeah, X-Men nineteen ninety nine, it really kicked off. I think without X Men, there would not be an MCU. Yeah. You know, without that big success in ninety nine. Mean, that's you know because you think about it like as much as I love the Burton movies, they're they're done in a way that are more hysterical than serious. X-Men was more of, hey, let's actually do a more serious superhero comic book franchise. Not only that, but I think we can all agree that Burton didn't exactly stick to the source material either. No, no. Joker did not kill Bruce Wayne's parents. So I think X-Men actually tried to stick to source material a little bit more. So it made it more of a, oh, so we can use comics and make movies out of them and morphed it into what we have the future now. So, so the question becomes, who voices Deadpool? I have my opinion, but I want to hear yours first. Oh, God. I, don't I, steal mine. I, no, I'm not going to steal yours because that wouldn't be cool. Um, I, there, man, I just... <sighs> it's funny because my first instinct is to try to think of people that we've had on the show. <laughs> David Sobolov. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Deadpool hate katanas. <laughs> Deadpool hate cancer. <laughs> I mean, what about Roger Craig Smith? Yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting, that would right? That be interesting as Why fuck. not? I mean, he'd be able to say no, at least, pretty well. We've heard our interview with him. <laughs> no! <laughs> I think he'd do an interesting go from Sonic to Deadpool. Why not? <laughs> oh, my God! Why not, right? That is a total, like, 180. Let's go from, like, this lovable, fast, blue hedgehog to this fucking mercenary. Yeah. It's just, yeah. oh, God. And, I mean, he was, the, he's, he was the voice of Batman, too, at one point, so. <laughs> the Bat and the Merc, come on. Come on. Oh, oh the I like yours, like, though. I really like yours. Well, I think Nolan North, because Nolan North, I mean, he's, he's 
one of a the biggest voice actors out there. But also, if you play the Deadpool video game, he voiced Deadpool yeah. and did a phenomenal job. So I think if you're looking for something to do the voice of Deadpool and you can't get Ryan Reynolds, hell. Get Nolan North. And Nolan North, I mean, you check his IMDb, he's not too busy right now, so... Yeah, Chard's done. <laughs> I am sure that he'd be more than happy to take on a Deadpool project. Yeah, man, but I mean, we're going to see what happens with that project. But hey, you know, a project that actually just got renewed for Season 3 is Blind Spot. We're going to be talking to somebody we had on the show before. Luke Mitchell is back! And he's going to be talking about Blind Spot, and we're going to talk about the season finale and more. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Martin Garrow, creator and executive producer of Blindspot, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, if you don't remember that we had this guy on the show last year, maybe somebody erased your memory, and that's something you're going to have to deal with, but we, who we have right now is the guy who plays Roman on Blindspot as we lead up to the finale on May the 17th. It's Luke Mitchell. Luke, welcome back, man. Thank you very much. Now, speaking of the last time we talked to you, you were saying how much of an easygoing guy you are, so what's it like to have to ramp up the intensity and the anger again for Blindspot? <laughs> oh, it's, it's just hilarious that I that this is two roles in a row that I'm I'm playing someone with, with anger issues, and big-time anger issues. It's just so interesting because, you know, anyone who knows me, uh, I'd We'll, we'll probably never recall a time that I've actually been angry in your life because it just doesn't happen. So in, that being said, it's incredibly challenging to, to bring these characters to life. And, um, you know, I, I mean, obviously, especially Roman, he's such a complicated guy. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to find a way in and, you know, make him as grounded as possible and, and, and keep, yeah, keep it simple. And of course, Luke, you know, there are many dynamics on Blind Spot. And the one that I loved, of course, since it was brought into the open, was the family dynamic, of course, between Jane, Roman, and Shepard. So outside of their ties to Sandstorm, what do you feel makes their family just so unique from others we've seen on television so far? Oh, goodness. Um, absolutely everything. <laughs> you know, they've got to be the weirdest family. I mean, they could almost have a, a comedic spin-off. Um, you know, imagine imagine Thanksgiving in the, in the Shepherd household. I don't know. It's 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 so interesting and sad and beautiful and and all these things. Uh, and obviously, super dramatic too. You know, to have these kids that, that their parents were murdered and then they were brought up in a South African orphanage and then they were you know essentially rescued by. Um, this woman who then became their mother, but then wasn't, you know, wasn't a real mother. You know, maybe took them under their under her wing and you know raised them, but maybe wasn't the most mothering of, of people to them. And you know, essentially trained them to be soldiers um, and killing machines. I mean, that's just crazy. But then to have, I mean, there's, there's so much story beyond that. But you know, then to have uh, Roman think that he's lost his sister. You know, I, I just feel like. Kids, especially siblings, have such a, a strong bond. Um, and then to uh, grow up without parents, um, you know, that bond must just be intensified. Um, and then to, for one of them to think that they've lost the other and then to get them back that they don't remember, you know, I, I could just go on and on. But it's, it's such an interesting dynamic because I'm not sure that at any point in time throughout the season have they all been on the same page. <laughs> yeah, at one point in time or the other, um, one of them is playing catch-up. Absolutely. And one of my favorite parts about the show is how 
how well everyone presents these raw emotional moments, like when Weller confronts Roman about killing Terrell Shaw's mother. So talk about how everyone from the cast to the writers all work together to create these so realistic moments. I mean, it all, it all starts in the writer's room. I mean, I, I just feel so lucky to be given the scripts that I'm given and the, the material to work on. But also, when I joined the show, you know, I was sat down at the beginning of it and um, by, by Martin and, um, you know, basically given my, my entire season arc, you know, maybe not all the details, but the majority of what I might, I'd be expected to do throughout the season was pretty much laid out in front of me, which is just incredible. I, you know, I've, I've never had that experience before as an actor. Um, and certainly coming from a Marvel show where everything's top secret, you don't know what's happening from one episode to the next. And, you know, I understand why that is the way it is. But then to step into a blind spot to have access to so much information is, is really great. And but also really important when you're, um, when you're given such a, such a complicated and important story to tell. But, but then, you know, on the acting level, you know, everyone's so so passionate about uh, about acting, but then also about the show, and you know everyone gets along really well. So there's a there's a really good feeling on set, um, which which is important. And I I feel like every time we step on set, we're we're trying to create something um, new and fresh and cool, which which just feels invigorating. You know, like guaranteed that not every set feels like that. I just I just know that from stories I've heard from other people. Um, so it's really nice to step onto a network TV set and, and feel like you've got to say in creativity and you can talk to the director and you can talk to the producer and you can talk to the writer and question things and go back and forth to, you know, try and try and knock out the best way um, to, to bring the story to life. Um, so whilst also um, doing it quickly because of on television. <laughs> And of course, you know, speaking of arcs, in the episode that's leading that led up to the finale, of course, we saw at the end, Roman finally remembers that it was Jane who erased his memory and made him restart <laughs> everything, basically. So now that he's aware of that, how has his views on just trust and who he can trust, how has all that changed for him? Everything's changed. From, from the moment that he remembers that it was Jane, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure he... I, I mean, the, the way I played it was that there's not much thinking going on. It's just animalistic behavior. You know, I think he just sees red. Jane is the one person since his memory wiped that he's completely trusted and they've built upon that trust. And, you know, he's been trying to find himself and, you know, you see, you, you see him trying to work out who, who he is as a person now. And now all of a sudden, the one, the one thing that uh, his entire relationship with her has been based on since the memory wipe is, is a lie. Um, it's you know, it's like taking the bottom tile out from the the Jenga t- the Jenga tower at the end of the Jenga game. You know, it's just that that was the thing keeping it all together. And now it's like, well, if I can't trust you, who who, who can I trust? So in that moment, it's just instinct. You know, I think he just sees her as a danger. Because if she's lied to him about that, what else has she lied to him about? And therefore, he needs to defend himself um, because he's in an unsafe environment. You know, the one person that he felt that he thought was that he was safe with, and the one environment he thought he was safe in, has just been completely turned upside down. And um, yeah, he's just—it's just rage. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. We're talking to Luke Mitchell, who plays Roman on Blindspot. Of course, the season finale going to be on Wednesday, May the 17th at 8 o'clock on NBC. Now, Luke, we saw Roman in isolation for a while once his memory was wiped before he was finally gone on to get some comforts of home. So if you were isolated for a long period of time, what's the first thing you'd want to do when you got out? Oh, Go to the beach, <laughs> go to the beach and uh, in the ocean and feel, feel the sand in my feet, uh, get a massage. Uh, I don't know. There's so many things. Uh, but yes, if I've been locked up in, in that crappy little cell for a period of time, definitely be seeking out some nature. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to the most wide open place possible, right? Yeah, exactly. And you probably you probably need a tan too, so there's that. <laughs> And, you know, of course, a totem we saw Roman and Jane have since they were kids was a certain coin. So, Luke, did you have a certain totem that you held on to growing up? If so, what was or what isn't? Do you still have it? Oh, good question. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard right now because I spend so much time traveling, so I have to keep my possessions to uh, you know, a, a limit. But... um just trying to think what was the thing from childhood that I held on to the longest. Um, oh, my God. Um, I don't know. Yeah, probably some sort of collectible. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe a, a, a card, maybe like a training card, uh, maybe like a Pokemon card. I don't know, something like that. Awesome. I think we all had that one card or trading card or something that we definitely held on to. But, Luke, I'm going to ask you to kind of tiptoe the line. Yeah, it's just... the sentimental value. Totally, yeah. I'm going to ask you to tiptoe the line a little bit here, Luke, because we have seen that Romans squared off with members of the FBI and Sandstorm. So as we get ready for the finale coming up without spoiling anything, is there a confrontation that we've not mm-hmm. seen before that fans can expect to see at this season's end? Ah, 100%. I would say this without spoiling it and without overhyping it, but it should be pretty hard. Basically, most of your favorite characters will be in jeopardy. Um, And Roman and Jane... Look, I can't get... Look, I just can't guarantee that everyone's going to make it out alive. Oh! There there are multiple life-threatening incidents um, in the finale, that's all I'll say. That's, that's, that's really awesome. Of course, there's a lot of mystery there, and just really a lot of tension we're looking forward to as well when this finale hits. And, you know, a big question surrounding Roman this whole season, actually ever since we really saw Roman, is just his ability to both have and showcase, you know, empathy and humanity. So, again, without spoiling anything, how much of that question will the finale answer? And uh, what to you has the most excitement coming into this finale? Oh, good one. Look, I, I found it really interesting that, um, you know, to be able to show so many different sides to Roman, and it's going to be interesting to watch it play out to see whether Jane can get through to him or not, uh, or whether he will continue to behave um, animalistically or not. There, there's one thing in particular that I'm... It, Extremely excited for pe- for fans to see because and it's uh, it's it's around it's it's around the climax of of the, the finale and I, I don't I don't know what I can say without spoiling it um, but it's I, it's 
It's big. It's big. I think we could say that to the end of almost every episode this season. It's been an amazing second season for Blindspot, and it's going to wrap up Wednesday, May the 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern on NBC, and we were so glad that this guy was a part of it. Our buddy Luke Mitchell, thanks for coming on with us this week. Awesome, guys. Thank you very much. You know, James, it was awesome talking to Luke again. I mean, Blindspot has just been amazing. Season 2 has been wonderful, but it's also really cool to hear an actor talk about going from – one studio where a lot of things were kept under wraps. You didn't really know where things are going week to week to now saying, hey, I'm on a show now where I know most of my arc, if not all of it. I can talk to who I want to talk to and kind of really invest myself more into this character that I'm playing and, and just how I want it was the best way to play this person, you know? And I think that that transparency allowed him to really get into the role of Roman and, and allow him to do the, let's just face it, amazing things that he's done this season. And, I mean, everybody involved in Blindspot has done such a phenomenal job. This has been such a great sophomore season for them. But the way that the way that Luke's been able to deal with this rise and fall of emotions from Roman throughout the season, I mean, it's been such a, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really has been a roller coaster for him. So to know that he was able to do like a deep dive on that and really get in there, it explains a lot as to why he was allowed to be able to do that. And that goes for the other actors on the show as well, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, and here's the way I look at Roman throughout this whole season is that he is, you know, some people say a ticking time bomb, but I think he's more just in the situations he's been. I mean, you go back to earlier in the season when he's in the car with Jane and he gets, you know, interrogated by the cops. He comes out of the car and he's just like kicking tons of policemen's ass outside of a car and yep. it's just, you know, and shooting through windows and stuff like that. It's kind of like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, if you will, where like he's so. There are times where he could display some empathy, where he does in certain scenes with Jane. But then there's certain scenes, like you want to go back to even uh, what was it a while back, the diner scene that he was in yep. as well. You know, where he just knew everything, and, he, and it's just big shoot on the diner and just flip of a switch. It's like okay, the animals come out. It's more you know survival instincts, and he just goes zero to 60 in how he plays the character and just how Roman goes in his actions and his emotions. And it's just now knowing that he knows that Jane is the reason why, you know, his memory's been erased. It's just, again, as Luke talked about, you know, this one person that he could trust betrayed him. And now it's like, where do you go from that? You know, now it's kind of like this whole time I've been just a puppet on a string for you. You know, that's what I felt like with Rome. That's what makes him such an interesting character because if you think about it, his whole life he's been a puppet, you know, whether it's through Shepard and then it's been through Jane through most of the season, the FBI. He, it's one of those things where he's trying to find his own identity, but he's unable to do that because people are not allowing him to do so, really. He's never been given a chance, it seems like, in his life, even back in childhood in the, in the, right. in the orphanage. He was never given a chance ever. And I think that that's kind of coming to a head now in that scene, man, where it was just that little subtle thing that happens to him when he cuts his hand. And that's what helps him remember when she's tending his wounds, that she's the one that wiped his memory. And then when you see, you could see it in, and it was so such a beautiful moment. You could see it in his eyes when he just turns. That's why I was saying that 
they create such realistic moments in the show because, you know, we all know that this is fiction. We all know that this is entertainment for us. But for some reason on this show, and especially with Luke Mitchell, with Roman, you feel like it's really happening. And I think that's a testament to not just the actors and actresses involved, the writers, Martin Gero, everyone involved has done just such a phenomenal job bringing realism to this show. And that's why we love it so much and continue to talk so much about it. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to Luke Mitchell for talking to us about Blind Spot. Of course, we had him on the show about a year and a half ago talking about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And now talking about Blind Spot and Roman, how awesome his character is on NBC. Be sure to check out Blind Spot because it's just an amazing, amazing show. And hey, if you want more of us after you watch the finale, or hey, even before the finale, you want more of us to see what's going on. Hit us up social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. We're also on Twitter at downandnerdy757. You can find me on Twitch, Instagram, and Twitter at Merck with one arm. I'm at James Ace Witham on Twitter. That's W-I-T-H-A-M. Make sure you're looking for all of our pictures and videos and stuff from Tidewater Comic Con on our social media pages, whether you're at the con or you just maybe interested in it or you just want to see some great cosplay photos and interviews that we're doing throughout the show. Be sure to follow us on that. Also, you can find all this stuff on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can find out a little bit more about us, a little bit more about the show. You want to buy the second season of Blind Spot on Amazon Instant? We'll be able to do all that on the This Week section of our website at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, pray safe comic book reading. Always beg and board your comics.